0: I understand that, uh, that we all have our preferences as far as particular books in the Bible that we like the most. You know, certain books seem to speak to, to us in a way that maybe some of the others don't as much, that sort of thing. I would imagine that you have your favorites uh, in Scripture and... <laughs> It might be obvious to you that John, the Gospel of John, is one of my very most favorite books in the Bible. It may actually be the most favorite book that I have of the Bible. Uh, and, and, And mostly because of this is we see in it the personality, the being of Jesus displayed to us in a way that the other Gospels just don't quite make the mark. Uh, it's less wooden. It's more human experience and Jesus' interaction with us as we are where we are in these people that he encounters. It doesn't include everything that you're going to find in the o- other Gospels, but at the same time it has a good bit of, uh, of its substance that is unique to this particular Gospel. It is gospel on a much more personal level than you're going to find with the others. Jesus interacting in a really very deep and personal times and ways with particular people. We've already seen that to some degree uh, already, but we're going to see again. Just, just remember the, the encounter that he had with, with Nicodemus the Pharisee and the encounter that we just finished studying with uh, with a woman of the uh, Samarita, uh, a Samarita at the well and then this, this grieving father whose son was so ill that he was on the verge of death who came to Christ. And, uh, and so again today we're going to find another one of those very personal kind of private encounters that people had with Jesus as we delve into chapter 5. So beginning with verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blamed, lime, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been helped or healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, a man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. As we have said already, Jesus was very faithful in keeping uh, all of the Old Testament law absolutely and completely. And uh, obviously, there's been some time that has taken place uh, since we discussed things last week. Uh, Jesus has gone to Jerusalem again. He's left Galilee, where we last found him, and he's gone back to Jerusalem for yet another feast and we're not sure exactly which one this is that the scriptures don't tell us more than likely if you kind of look at a rough timetable it's probably uh... the feast of pentecost that he is at now because he was required all jewish men were required to go to jerusalem three times a year uh... for the feast of booths the feast of the passover uh... and the feast of pentecost and so jesus being faithful to his father's calling and faithful to the law He is in Jerusalem once again with his disciples. Now we've talked already uh, about the simple fact that as you go through the gospel of of John, you're going to find that Jesus repeatedly has these divine appointments with particular people. Uh, We know he had this conversation with Nicodemus. That was a divine appointment established back at the very beginning of time, by the way. That's how far back his calendar goes. Uh, and then he had the encounter with a woman at the well of Samaria. And etc., etc., etc. which we see in another one of these. In other words, this guy did not know Jesus, but Jesus knew this man before they even had this encounter. In fact, Jesus was where he was for a lot of purposes, uh, more than likely, but, but at least a specific purpose of in having these particular encounters with these very specific people. And this man is another one. Another divine appointment. This pool that is mentioned here, the pool of Bethesda, was located within the temple complex, just north of, or close to the, uh, the temple complex, uh, just north of the sheep gate entrance to the temple. It was uh, evidently spring-fed, two pools side by side. They were at least partially covered by a shelter to protect the people that were gathered there from the sun. They gathered here in great numbers. People who were suffering from various illnesses. Blindness, lameness, sicknesses, withered limbs, paralysis, bodily weariness. They were gathered there for a reason, and the reason was that it was said that uh, periodically an angel would go down into the pool, and anyone that entered the pool immediately after that, the first person would be healed from whatever affliction that they were suffering from. So we can understand, based upon that, why there would be a multitude of people there. They were there, and they all had the same hope. And the hope was that they would be healed from their physical affliction. I would imagine that there was a large crowd gathered there all the time. Every one of those people wanted to be the first person in the pool when the waters were stirred because that person would be healed. You can imagine some of those people have probably been there for a very lengthy bit of time. And, uh, and after sitting long, long time, uh, hours and perhaps days sometimes, you can understand where some people might just get frustrated, even though they might be the next in line to go into the pool and get frustrated and just leave. And so as soon as that happened, there would be a cascading effect of people getting down closer to the pool. Everyone wanted to be there. They wanted to be that guy or that Gal. This is a scene upon which Jesus comes. A multitude of people that are suffering from pretty much every malady known to man. All with a common desire. And that is to be healed from their physical afflictions. Jesus is on a mission. He didn't just happen to be there. He wasn't just scrolling through Jerusalem and come upon this scene that drew him uh, into the picture. This meeting, this conversation, this miraculous healing had been planned since the very beginning of time. The man didn't know Jesus, but Jesus knew him. And he has known him since the very beginning of time. And he's done everything necessary not only to bring physical healing to this man, but to bring something even far more important. And that is salvation, spiritual healing. Seeing the man Jesus ask him, do you want to be healed? Now let me tell you, if I were that man, I might answer him with some degree of sarcasm. I might say something like, why in the world do you think I'm here? Look at all these other people, they're here for the same reason." We're all here because we want to be healed. That should be obvious to anybody. We don't know exactly what the condition was this man was suffering from. We only know that it was physical and it was he was very much weakened by it to the point he was not able to to walk at least very well. He had a mat that he carried around which tells us this, that he was able to at least move from place to place but he didn't do it very easily. Something else that's very important to our understanding of this is the general concept of what was going on here in the Jewish mind. The Jews believed that all these people were gathered together because they had committed unbelievable sins. And God had cursed them as a result of it. They also believe this. This was another fundamental aspect of their belief, and that is, this is I'm not down there. I'm not one of those people. And because I'm not, that means I'm at least better than they are. I haven't done what they've done, I haven't committed those severe and terrible sins that they committed that brought this affliction upon them. In other words, there's a sense in in, in the Jewish mind that these people were simply getting from God what they had earned and what they had deserved. And because I, was, I am not afflicted like this, and what does that say? It says, well, I'm, I must be doing pretty well. God hasn't given me one of these physical afflictions like he has these Sinners. So they believed that every physical affliction that fell upon people was a result of their sin. And there's an interesting story in John chapter 9 about a person who was bl- uh, born blind. And the disciples can put two and two together. How is it that this guy was born blind? Was it because of his sin or was it because of the sins of his parents? In other words, they were poking holes in that basic Jewish assumption right there. It didn't make sense to them. How could this possibly be? But that's something we're going to talk about on another day. We will get there eventually. But see, I would say to you, one of the things, one of the principles that was underlying this whole picture is this, is that the people there would see the glory of God revealed in a manner that they never had before. The people who saw this, they were a witness to to this, that they would understand that something miraculous has happened in their play in their where they are. And that they would know, without a doubt, that God had visited, that God had brought this about, that God had made this a reality, that God had brought this to be, that He would get the credit where the credit is due God Christ Jesus could have left every one of us where we were afflicted with sin dead to God He chose not to do that. And we are living examples of God's grace. No one here has earned it. No one here has deserved it. As a matter of fact, we have done everything but earn it. We have done everything but deserve it. But godly, but God has freely of his own will. And for his own purposes, brought the one who is dead back to life. There's a great resurrection to come, but there's a sense in which every believer has already experienced a resurrection. Not a physical resurrection, but a spiritual resurrection. Where God is breathed into a dead person, life. There's a sense in which these people, at least some of them, are in the condition. They are, they're all there because of sin. We need to understand that. That This guy suffered because of sin. All physical ailment is a result of it. We need to understand that. But we cannot ever conclude or come to the conclusion, well, they, they're suffering. I'm not. That means I'm good. They're not good. If we all have good health, if we have really, you know, the very healthy f- physically, we need to understand something. That is a gift from God, period. Not because we're better than other people, etc., 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 because God has chosen to give us really good health. See, all of these things are gifts from God. They're not humanly manufactured at all every blessing that we have is a gift from God. Every one, whether it's physical or spiritual or otherwise. There are a lot of things going on in this picture. One of those is this man would be healed miraculously and he he would... Realized the benefits of now being able to do things like pick up his mat and walk with it, instead of maybe having someone else do it for him or maybe drag it behind him or or whatever. He was physically able now to do things he was not just moments before. Well, sometimes people want to say things like this. And, and let me tell you something. You should, above all people, wonder why God has saved you. You know, how often we are just, just amazed that, you know, you, you know I prayed for so on and so on, and I didn't think they'd ever come to faith. And you know, I had people say that about me. You're the last person I thought would come to faith. But, but just out of obedience to God, I prayed for you, and I witnessed to you, and whatever, never had any thought or belief that it ever would come to anything. But we need to understand something that this guy was healed not only for his benefit, but for the benefit of everyone in that place who saw what happened. Everyone in this room that is a believer. We should be able to rate, relate directly to this picture. We can see ourselves reflected in what is going on here. And let me tell you, I can't tell you specifically why God has chosen to save you, but for one reason. He has multiple reasons, no doubt about it, but there is one very clear reason. And that is that people would understand that this is a God thing. That God did it. In other words, one of the reasons that God does these sorts of things, physical healings and spiritual healings among people, is that he would be honored and glorified as a result of it. You can say that in absolutely every one of these circumstances. That's part of it. It's not all of it, but that's part of it. That when people would look and they would see and they would understand what is taking place, they have to come to only one possible conclusion, and that is this was a God thing. Only God could do something like this. So what I'm telling you is God has saved you for obviously multiple reasons, but one of those is that he would be glorified in your salvation. You can imagine this man now able to get up and walk and bumping into people that have maybe known him and seen him and they're going... What in the world happened? (laughs) What do you think he was telling them? This man, Jesus, I don't really know a whole lot about him, but this man, Jesus, he healed me. Can't we say the same thing to unbelievers about ourselves in regard to our salvation? Is that so hard to tell people about Jesus? Jesus? Sometimes we make it very difficult. Jesus doesn't wave some magic wand or do anything of that sort. He just simply says to the man, "Get up, take your bed, and walk." Now you can imagine. I don't think we can really imagine what was going through the man's mind at that point. You want me to do? It should be obvious to you, I can't do something like that. But he does. To everybody's surprise. You would think everybody in Jerusalem would be celebrating about the fact that this this person was healed from such a severe affliction. But there are always those who want to rain (laughs) on the parade. The Jewish officials take exception because when they ask him what happened, He tells them that the man who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. See, they're disturbed because this man is actually carrying something on the Sabbath day. And by doing that, he was working. And by working, he was violating the Sabbath. They had very strict rules and regulations. You could only walk such a particular distance on the Sabbath day. And if you went a step further, than you were actually doing work. It was insane. Some of you remember Paul Kalfa. Remember Paul? Raise your hand if you remember Paul. Good number of people. He was here with us for a few years and helped me out. He he was a seminary graduate by the time he got here and Before he came here, he had graduated from seminary and he went to Muncie, New York to serve in a little church there that was really struggling to try to keep its doors open uh, and that sort of thing. And he went there with the understanding of the elders that he was going to commit a year to getting things turned around. And if things didn't look like they were turning around at that point, then he was not going to stay there. But the interesting thing about it was this little church was in the midst of a Hasidic Jewish community, strict legalism and some of the things he told us were really kind of comical, I mean they make you want to laugh The things that took place on the Sabbath day were really very, very interesting for him because, you know, they practiced the Sabbath on on Saturday and, you know, Sabbath for him was Sunday uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, he would get visitors coming to his house on on Saturdays. Uh, And they would never, ever come right out and ask him to do things for them But they would gesture with their eyes that they wanted him to follow them and this, that and the other. And they would would lead him into their house and there would be perhaps a light that was, an electric light that was turned off. That they were not allowed to turn on because that would constitute work on the Sabbath day. And they would never come out and say, would you please turn the light on for us. They would just kind of, you know, motion around and roll their eyes and this and the other. And he would understand they wanted him to turn the light on and say he would do that for them. Also, when they wanted the light turned off later, then he would have to go back and do that too. doesn't this sound insane? But we need to understand this Is what it's like to live in strict literalism that goes way beyond God's intention for us and just think about how insane this whole picture is because now you have these Jewish rabbis and other Jewish leaders telling the Son of God who wrote the very law what it means Isn't that insane? They're trying to explain to Jesus what is okay and what is not okay to do on the Sabbath day. When Jesus, in fact, the Son of God, is the author of the law of God, who knows better than he what the rule means and what the law says and what the intention of God is in keeping it. But I want to remind us all this morning that every time that we sin, what we are doing is we are questioning God's authority over us. How often do we do that? Way more often than you think. Or I think. There's a sense in which sin has part, it plays part of the picture of the very greatest and goodest things that you and I do. Sin is always there lurking in the back. I mean, how many times have you heard that little voice in your head saying things like, God is really going to love me for this. Look at this great sacrifice that I've made. Or look what I've done to make this per- person's life better. But Jesus bumps into this guy, not unintentionally, but on purpose. Later on, after he has left and he's had this conversation with the the Jewish leadership, and, and Jesus goes and seeks this guy out again to have a conversation with him. And what does he say to him? He says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Are we to think that Jesus is saying anything less than that to you and me this morning? Seriously. See, the problem is we all suffer from sin blindness. Not blindness when it comes to the sins of other people, which we very often see very clearly. We're far more blind to our own. it's very easy for us to justify our own. Because we understand the circumstances in a manner that other people don't. Is Jesus saying anything less to you and me this morning? The answer is no way, Jose. Sanctification is a theological term. Is also biblical Uh, let me just read to you from the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession with a question number 35 what is sanctification the answer is sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live under righteousness Theologically, there are two different aspects to sanctification. One of those is what we call positional sanctification. That means this that you can understand and believe that I am absolutely perfectly holy in the eyes of God at where I am right now today for one reason, and that is because Christ has paid the full penalty of the consequences of my sin. And I have inherited. His perfect righteousness through my faith in him so there's a sense in which you are sanctified where you are but there's also what we call progressive sanctification which means dying more and more to sin and living more and more under righteousness that requires Action that requires activity on our part to work not against the Holy Spirit but to work along with the Holy Spirit and living a life that is more and more defined by grace and holiness and less and less by sin. In other words, it means dying more and more to the old self and living more and more in him and through him and for him. It's not something that just some believers are called to do. Everyone is. Now, I would imagine what's going on inside of you right now, some of you at least, are feeling really guilty. I am. Because you can look back across the last week, and it wouldn't be hard for you to come up with all kinds of examples of how you were not really walking with Christ at times. You could probably look back through the previous things that have happened this very morning and understand that. And let me tell you something, guilt is not a very good motivator. However, guilt is something that is very often used by people like me to try to motivate people. By making people feel guilty. The reality tells us over and over again that guilt is a very poor manipulator for one reason, and that is because even if you do what you're being made guilty to do, you're doing it for the wrong reason. And ultimately, doesn't accomplish anything good or great. But how often do we Give credence to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, that's part of what's going on right here with you right now. The Holy Spirit is convicting you. And it's only the power of that Holy Spirit that can overcome the vestige of sin that still lies. Within the very best of us here. Do you understand a lot of what we're talking about is really just letting go and letting God? Not fighting against Him. Which is what the sinful nature that's still active within us is going to encourage us to do. What I pray this morning is that God would give all of us eyes to see to really see and ears to hear and really hear. What the Spirit is doing, not only around us, but what the Spirit is doing, maybe more importantly, within us.